This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Day seven without coffee. And I'm happy to report I am feeling fantastic. I tell you, I'm drinking green tea, and in the morning I have these shakes. Uh, I, believe me, I, I'm the last person I thought would ever uh, get into this, you know, health kick, but I'm having these shakes in the morning. A cup of raspberries, a cup of blueberries, a coconut oil. Uh, never even heard of coconut oil, uh, but I'm uh, throwing that in the shake and almond milk and and uh, uh, kale. And uh, so I've been feeling uh, so great that I decided uh, to actually start running, which I, I mean, I've not had any physical activity in my life other than, you know, uh, tossing the children around in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> we're playing, okay, or taking them up and down the stairs. So I started to run. Now I'm. Uh, it's taken me a while to sort of get up to speed, and I'm just kind of chugging along. The other day, up in uh, Thornhill there, and uh, I'm not uh, setting any land speed records. That's for sure. Uh, old guy in a walker comes, you know, by and says, "Get out of my way." <laughs> so, but uh, feeling great, and uh, hope you are too, wherever you are. You know, we recently uh, marked the. 49th anniversary, is it now? My gosh, 49 years since the Kennedy assassination, and in just a couple minutes here, uh, the man who wrote the book that really inspired Oliver Stone to make the movie JFK is going to join us, uh, award-winning uh, journalist, uh, perennial New York Times best-selling author Jim Mars is standing by. I'll ask him a little bit about JFK, but he's got a new book out called uh, Our Occulted History, which is due out in February. So we're going to get into a little discussion about uh, uh, secret societies. In particular, I want to pick his brain uh, about the round table. The round table. I say that I, I, this comes up because recently I hosted an event here in Toronto. G. Edward Griffin, another heavyweight. We only bring you the heavyweights on this program. Uh, G. Edward Griffin, of course, author of The uh, Creature from Jekyll Island and World Without Cancer, uh, came to Toronto uh, to speak about Agenda 21. This is the UN's Global uh, Sustainable Development Plan, and a lot of people 
are, are very concerned about Agenda 21 because it's, um, well, let's face it, the UN is not a big fan of private property and many critics of Agenda 21 believe uh, that part of uh, their, their, the UN's plan is uh, to ban uh, private property and to herd, um, herd us all like cattle into major centers uh, increase the uh, the population densities and then rewild, so that we're going to basically uh, leave the hinterlands and the you know the the, the great plains and all of that uh, and and abandon it and uh, be herded into the big cities and then they're going to rewild the rest of North America, you know uh, bring back uh, a lot of these uh, animals long uh, extinct from you know the Great Plains and so forth, as I mentioned. Anyway, that's Agenda 21. So he was here to talk about that, but he also talked about, G. Edward Griffin did, where he feels the real power lies. Who's running the show? And it's surprisingly not the folks at Disney. It's, uh, it's the roundtable groups. Who are these roundtable groups? We're going we're gonna to delve into that a little bit uh, with my next guest. As I say, an award-winning journalist. He has over 30 years' experience uh, writing for several... Texas newspapers. In 1999, he began teaching a course on UFOs, perhaps one of the first university-level UFO UFO courses in the nation. He also investigated the U.S. Army's remote viewing program three years before it was publicly acknowledged by the CIA and then produced Alien Agenda. What a seminal work that was. In addition, his book, Rule by Secrecy. This is a book I keep on my nightstand. If you're new to this whole field of uh, conspiracies, or what my, my good friend Nelson Thal calls state secrets. This is the primer. Get Jim Marr's book, Rule by Secrecy. Uh, it's um, an underground bestseller. His other books include Crossfire, which I mentioned. That was the book that inspired Oliver Stone to write JFK. And um, his other books include The Rise of the Fourth Reich, The Terror Conspiracy, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, He's been a frequent guest on this program and on my television program, The Conspiracy Show. His latest book is Our Occulted History. What a pleasure to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, Jim Mars. Jim, how are you? Hey, Richard. It's great to be back with you. And I have to put in a plug here. I heard you mention coconut oil. Yes. My, uh, my cook, otherwise known as my wife of 45 years, uh, yes. um, because of various reasons, has been using a lot of coconut oil. And it's great. Man, it tastes great. It spices up and spruces up all kinds of dishes. And, uh, and you don't get all that bad oil stuff, you know? No, and the other thing is, is I put it raw into my, uh, my shake, and it's, it just increases mental clarity. I have never felt so alert in my life. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and, you know, I was talking to this uh, doctor friend of mine, and this guy is like head of gastrointestinal whatever. I mean, this guy is very specialized and, and head of some very uh, specialized doctors. And I was talking to him about nutrition. And in like seven or eight or nine years of medical school, they they never really get taught about nutrition. No, <laughs> no. Just, you know, never mind about that. Take a pill. 
Exactly. You know, they, we we got to get that thing turned around, don't we? Isn't that the huge pink elephant in the room? Is that nobody yeah. talks about the fact uh, that the that the doctors uh, get uh, they get um, invited to speak at these conferences by the drug companies? They're paid right. by the drug co- drug companies. This right. is a this and this goes on all over the world. This is a monumental conflict of interest, but nobody says anything. Well, and you know, Richard, it's even worse than that because the pharmaceutical companies, of course, are in bed with the the Federal uh, Drug Administration, the FDA. And uh, uh, when I say in bed, actually, they dominate the FDA, and they control the FDA. And if doctors don't prescribe X number of pills and drugs, well, then they the AMA and the ADA come down on them. And they, and they get, number one, pressured, and then they get sanctioned. You know, it's, he, he, it's, it's, it's an incestuous, terrible situation. And that's right. Well, that, unfortunately, uh, I, I guess it's going to get worse. Well, uh, if it can, I don't know. But, uh, and here in Canada, uh, what I've been told uh, by a number of former Health Canada employees is they are to refer to these drug companies. The, the people, I mean, they're supposed to oversee them and regulate them. They, right. they are to refer to them as clients. Yes. Isn't that absurd? Well, I don't know about you, but having worked in political relations and advertising, a client is someone who pays you to do their bidding, okay? Well, that's pretty much how it works. I know in every agency I ever worked for, either on salary or or as a consultant or whatever, uh, you yielded to the client. Whatever the client wants, that's what you did. There you go, and that's how it works, apparently. Exactly, and that's we've we've got to change that. Jim, I, um, I I mentioned the round table, and and uh, G. Edward Griffin was talking about uh, the round table and and uh-huh. uh, Cecil Rhodes. Can we get into that a little bit? Well, Cecil Rhodes, the diamond magnate of of South Africa, you know, uh, back at the turn of the twentieth century, uh, he had what started off called the business round table, and finally they just called them the round tables, and it was a collection of industrials industrialists and, and uh, corporate leaders. They called them trust back then, but that's corporations is what it was, and the huge big companies. And uh, they put all the leaders of these big companies and of these corporations together, uh, and they were figuring out ways to maximize profits and to minimize expenses. Uh, and so they formed these roundtables. Uh and it was from these roundtables, which uh, Cecil Rhodes funded and left a lot of money to, and he himself called them secret societies, okay, because they were secret. You had to be asked to join. Uh, they wanted to make sure that you were of the proper class and of the proper uh, worldview. And it was from these roundtables that we saw the creation of the Council on Foreign Relations and its uh, U.K. sister, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. And I think we've got one similarly named up here in Canada as well. Yes, and I'm sure it's a sister organization. They're all connected to the same people. Um, And the the thing is, this is what I point out in my new book, uh, Our Occulted History, which I hate to go into too much because... I don't want to get everybody fired up, and then they go run and say, oh, I'm going to run and get a copy, and then they find out it's not due out until February. Uh, so well, we'll make that clear. Details, but what comes down to is that 
even though the names of the corporations change, the names of the administrators change, the ownership and the controlling interest, which does not have to be contrary to a lot of people think you have to have more than 51% to control a company, but you don't, okay? If there's a corporation, and let's say uh, you own uh, uh, 10% of it, and nobody else owns more than 5%, you control that company. Right, right. Right? You understand this, and I understand this. Because your your 10% is a block. You have to have... 51% 51% before you can control a company, but you don't. All you have to do is have enough of the voting stock to where you can own it and you can control it. Because your 10% is a block. Those others aren't organized. That's right. right. That's right. And uh, I know I got on this years ago when uh, Ray, uh, President Reagan's CIA director, Bill Casey, uh, was involved with a company called Resorts International, and they, they turned around and bought... ABC television, because it was exposing some of the evil deeds of the CIA. And um, uh, Casey had gone to the FCC and tried to get them to pressure ABC, get them to tone it down or stop reporting on the CIA, and ABC wouldn't do it. So he just went and they leveraged it out and and bought ABC, a company two-thirds larger than itself, this Resorts International, and come to find out he owned like 5% of the stock, and it said, according to the Associated Press, his wife owned a like amount, which means she owned about 5%, and no one owned more than 6%. Well, that meant he controlled it, okay? There you go. And That's this how it is how you run these things, and this is how you control it all. And the point being is that they're behind the scenes, there is literally a handful of people, and they're all related. Okay, I was absolutely amazed. George Bush, Al Gore, John Kerry, they're all related. Let's delve they're into that. They're all cousins to the Windsors. Let's delve into that, Jim. family of England. Let's delve into that when we come back. Jim Mars, the legend, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Hope you'll be a part of the program as well. We'll roll out the numbers when we come back from the break in just a moment. We'll talk about the roundtable. Who's really running the show? Back with more. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at Monday nights on other channels are soft and flabby. Vision TV flexes its muscles with award-winning and world-premiere documentaries to keep you mentally fit. 
featuring wide-ranging subjects from sex to cyborgs, astrology to the apocalypse, and prophets to thought police. All set for brain training? Kick off your week with the Monday Night Mind Workout, 9 to 11 p.m. on Vision TV, Rogers Cable 60, and Bell 261. Are social media websites the arsenal of Western government? And why big agriculture would go bankrupt if the world learned the truth. Satisfy your curiosity at your non-fiction source for all suppressed and conspiratorial information. ConspiracyCulture.com Books, magazines, DVDs, and special events. Conspiracy Culture. Queen Street, West Toronto, east of Roncesvalles. The bookstore for free-thinking Canadians. We've always wanted to work with Gordon, and now is the perfect time because he has a memoir coming out. That's Zoomer Magazine's editor-in-chief, Suzanne Boyd, talking about the November issue with Gordon Pinson on the front cover. This is his first book in 20 years. It's called Next, and at 82, he still believes in the future. Plus, Zoomer's second annual Snowbird Travel Guide, from traditional hotspots to hidden gems. The November issue of Zoomer Magazine on newsstands now. Or go to zoomermag.com to subscribe and save 50% off the cover price. Note to self, excited about conversation with Lawrence over lunch. New online investing service from BMO provides advice on what to buy and sell for my portfolio, called Advice Direct. Notifies me when my portfolio needs attention. No more worries about asset allocation or diversification. Free 90-day trial. Reminder, open new account. Buy Lawrence warm, fuzzy thank you card. Advice Direct from BMO Investor Line. A new way to manage your investments. See it in action at bmo.com slash advice direct. Member of Canadian Investor Protection Fund and IROC. Some conditions apply. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. And your portal uh, into The Conspiracy Show, the website richardserrett.com and uh, the other website theconspiracyshow.com. Look for an announcement soon on theconspiracyshow.com regarding season three of the TV show, The Conspiracy Show. Uh, coming soon, an announcement on season three. All right, uh, Jim Mars is with us, and uh, just a reminder, his new book, Our Occultist History, is coming out February of 2013. February. Uh, we're going to tease you a little bit with um, some uh, some secret society talk right now, though. Uh, Jim stays with us for the hour. So let me go back to Cecil Rhodes, and I want people to understand how wealthy this individual was. I mean, he, he was a, a mining magnate, diamonds primarily, I guess. Uh, I mean, in today's dollars, I mean, he was probably the richest man in the world at that time, at the time of his death, about ni- 1902, I think it was. But give me a sense of how wealthy this guy was, Jim. Well, he pretty much owned all of South Africa. That's, uh, that obviously requires uh, some bucks. But he was able to... Uh, to be a controlling influence uh, at the time when the British Empire was, you know, uh, perhaps at its zenith, uh, and they uh, they threw the various uh, British corporations through the back of England. Uh, they pretty well dominated the Western uh, Western civilization. Um, and again, what we do is we find that uh, that they're they're all connected. Um, for example, uh, 
Uh, let's go back to the administration of George Herbert Walker Bush. Every member uh, of his cabinet, except for Vice President Dan Quayle, who, as you recall, couldn't spell potato, <laughs> and his old buddy Jim Baker, but everybody else was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Yes. Cecil Rhodes's, uh, you know, secret society. So, but then in 1993, we got the Clinton administration. Bill Clinton and Democrats, okay, so we supposedly changed everything. Oops, wait a minute. Every member of Clinton's uh, administration and cabinet, with the exception of Defense Secretary William Perry, were Council on Foreign Relations. Ah, but then we get Bush Jr. George W. comes in and in the uh, selection of uh, 2000, and we look at his cabinet, Dick Cheney, Colin Power, Condoleezza Rice, Don Rumsfeld, Elaine Chow, Robert Gay. Oh, hello. They're all Council on Foreign Relations. But then we get a, a Democrat, Barack Hussein Obama. Okay, so you'd think we've had a big change, right? Well, no, wait a minute. We still get Robert Gates, Janet Napolitano, Bill Richardson, Susan Rice, James Jones, uh, General Jones, blah, blah, blah. They're all Council on Foreign Relations. And if that's not bad enough, uh, in 2009, and this the source of this was on the Council on Foreign Relations website, uh, we have General James Jones, uh, Secretary of uh, of uh, uh, National Security Advisor, uh, at a Munich conference uh, in Germany, saying, and this is a direct quote. As the most recent National Security Advisor of the United States, I take my daily orders from Dr. Kissinger, uh-huh. filtered down to General Brent Snowcroft and Sandy Berger, who is also there. We have a chain of command in the National Security Council that exists today. Well, wait a minute. National Security Council, we hear this all the time, don't we, Richard? The National Security Council. Yes, they- yes ordered this and ordered that, and they said they're going to bomb this place and and missile that place. The order's supposed to come from the president. Well, yeah. So so that, you know, that constrains us to ask what exactly who is the National Security Council? Uh, I'm not even sure if you're aware of this. Are you aware that uh, formally the National Security Council is is simply uh, the president, the vice president, secretary of defense, and state? That's it. Right. Now that think was, about it. Three of them, Secretary of State and Defense and the uh, Vice President, they all are appointed or named by the President. Right. So, in other words, it's a one-man chain of command. And it's, you know, that kind of kind of begins to sound like the de- definition of a dictatorship. Well, it's a national security state is what it is, I guess, exactly. by definition. Exactly. Now, it's uh, all being run more and more by concentrated power. Let me, uh, uh, here's a, a crib a line here from... Uh, what it was supposedly Cecil Rhodes' will. And again, this was the wealthiest man in the world. He gave all of his fortune, his entire fortune, to the creation of these roundtable groups. In the, in the will, he says, two and four, the establishment, promotion, and development of a secret society, the yep. true aim and object whereof shall be for the extension of British rule throughout the world. So... What is he? What was he? What was he trying to do? Uh, uh, bring about one world government, but would, would be but would be run by the Anglo-American establishment, or? Yep. yep. He was doing exactly what the Nazis tried to do, which was to to have their uh, 
their own genetic and eugenic uh, bloodline uh, be in charge of running the world. And uh, it's, it's always been thus, actually. Uh, it's absolutely amazing, but you can, you can go all the way back to Philip of Macedonia, and you can trace these people up through uh, ancient Egypt and Greece and then Rome, and then you can get to uh, Duke Geoffrey de Bouillon of the House of Lorraine, who became the, Jerusalem, the king of Jerusalem and founded uh, the Priory of Sion and the, and the uh, Knights T- and, and helped create the Knights Templars. And then you find out that, uh, oops, George Herbert Walker Bush and his, and his wife Barbara both are related to Bouillon family. Uh, and then you come down to the descendants of uh, Louis and Charles of, and Henry and all these kings of France and Britain, and uh, they're all of the same bloodline. Uh, the Bushes, for example, are from the Pierce bloodline, which changed its name from Percy when they uh, came across the Atlantic and, and uh, began set up shop in North America. And Percy today still remains one of the most of the largest of the aristocratic families in Britain. Um, and then, according to Lynn Cheney, Dick Cheney's wife, who was preparing a book, she finds out that uh, uh, it goes on and on because uh, she found out that uh, a descendant of Maureen Duval, a French Huguenot whose son married the granddaughter of a Richard Cheney, uh, is Barack Hussein Obama. Oh, my. So Obama's related to Cheney. <laughs> okay? And the, and the Chicago Sun-Times further reported that both Obama and Cheney are blood relations to the Bush family. Uh, and, and it just, I mean, wait a minute, what are the odds here? And uh, they're linked, uh, the Bushes are linked to a 17th century Massachusetts couple, Samuel Hinckley and Sarah Sewell. And Hinckley is a relative of George Herbert Walker, Bush's friend John Warnock Hinckley, whose son, John Warnock Hinckley Jr., was the man who shot President Reagan. Now, talk about <laughs> keeping it all in the family. And and uh, and John Hinckley, uh, did they not find on him an uh, an appointment book? Was he not supposed to have lunch with Neil Bush or something that day? Yes. Or? Yes. Uh, Neil Bush was scheduled to have a dinner with uh, his. Uh, I'll forget now. It's his father, his brother. But anyway, uh, well, the father, John Hinckley Sr. And George Herbert Walker Bush were old business partners and oil men together uh, here in Texas, and they were close friends anyway. And then, obviously, the family then knew. It, it, it just goes on and on. Who, who was providing security for the World Trade Center when they got demolished? Neil Bush. In September. Yeah. Uh, outfit called Securicom. And Securicom, the, uh, the uh, CEO was Wirt Walker III, as in George Herbert Walker Bush, all right? And, uh, I, I, and one of uh, Bush's younger brother, Marvin Bush, sat on the board of directors. So the Bushes had control over the security of the World Trade Center. My, my. Uh, Jim Mars I mean, is with it us. it just goes on and on. Uh, the, how are these roundtables? Now, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, is that these secret societies, these roundtables... 
Uh, they may have branch offices in every country, but they're organized sort of because people often say, well, how can you keep something like that secret? But they're okay. organized among a principle of is it concentric rings so that nobody on the outside really knows who on the inside is giving the orders. Right. Well, for example, uh, in the Royal Institute of International Affairs and as with the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, I call them secret societies because it's not like they're a secret. I mean, it, they have websites, <laughs> and they, they publish foreign affairs. They publish this ma- monthly magazine and or quarterly. And, uh, you know, they tell you exactly what they're talking about and what they're looking at and how they view the world. They're, I call them secret societies because, Richard, you and I can't join, and neither can any of your listeners. I don't care how much money you have. You can't say, oh, well, that sounds like a good idea. I want to be a member, too. Uh-uh. You have to be approved. You have to go through a vetting process, and they have to make sure that you're of the the proper class and the proper world outlook, okay, and that you're in tune uh, with their new world order. And only then are you invited to come and be a member, and then you have to pledge that you will not reveal anything that you learn uh, in these meetings or in these discussions. And they say this is so they can have a frank and open discussion. But what it does is, of course, is clamp down a media blackout on their activities and on their thinking. And yet, uh, all you have to do is go back and study what little bit of information does leak out. And you find that all too often, some of the policy changes that they discuss in these secret society members' meetings all end up being official policy adopted by Canada and by the U.K. and by the United States. So it really makes a mockery of the whole idea of democracy. Uh, We have an organization up here called the C.D. Howe Institute. I don't know if you've ever come across uh, um, uh, them, but they've been... In fact, I believe uh, it was either the C.D. Howe Institute or the Fraser Institute. These are sort of two... Uh, ostensibly conservative uh, think tanks, uh, but the idea of the Amero, I believe, was the, the name of it was coined with either the, at the Fraser Institute, I believe. I, I I can't remember which one it was, but I believe you're right. And of course, the Amero was the idea that they're going to try to have a North American uh, monetary unit uh, to replace the dollar and the and the Canadian dollar and the Mexican peso. Uh, and they began working on this, of course, with the signing of the Prosperity and Partnership in 2005. Um, and they're still working on that, but they're having trouble now because more and more people are waking up and there's more and more resistance. Uh, for example, they were going to run that Canamex superhighway right through the middle of Texas, all the way up through the middle of the United States. And, and then, up to Manitoba, yeah. Yeah, and then run right into Canada split, I think, and go both east and west, uh, they're still doing it. <laughs> they're still planning on doing it, but it slowed them down. They had to change the name. The uh, the uh, Spanish company uh, that was uh, related to the royals over there, uh, they got eased out, and I think they're, they're changing the name and, you know, a few cosmetic changes going on, but they're still pushing for this. Because it comes back to what you yourself said, Richard, about what they want is a North American uh, wild area where it's just beautiful, untouched countryside, you know, unfettered by 
us nasty old humans. And uh, with just a few really magnificent uh, living spaces, like huge suburbs, uh, you know, uh, tended by the rich and or owned by the rich and powerful, and then tended by a bunch of uh, serfs or peons that would, you know, do the cooking and the cleaning and the gardening and stuff like that. And that's why uh, they're in the process right now of eliminating the middle class. How does this dovetail, if at all, with Agenda 21 and the U.N.? In other words, is this uh, roundtable using the U.N. uh, to achieve this one-world government, or is the U.N. using the American, uh, you know, empire uh, to further the UN's agenda. Let's think on that. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and continue our conversation with Jim Mars, our occultist history due out February 2013. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Jim Mars is with us, the author of uh, Rule by Secrecy, Crossfire, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, The Terror Conspiracy, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, and his, and his uh, next, due out February 2013, Our Occultist History. Uh, we're talking about uh, the, the secret uh, roundtable group started by Cecil Rhodes uh, at the, uh, the turn of the century. He willed his entire fortune to the establishment of these secret societies, and the, uh, uh, the end game was world government. Uh, yeah, in fact... Uh, that's all sort of epitomized in one of Rhodes' uh, statements. He said, I quote, I would annex the planets if I could. Uh, this was a man hell-bent on, uh, on world domination. Now, uh, let, let's go back to the U.N., uh, the U.N. Agenda 21. And, and I will, in, in the very near future, be dedicating an entire hour to this topic. Uh, but uh, um, what's always confused me is, because at, at times, the U.S. seems somewhat antagonistic uh, towards the U.N. Uh, on the other hand, uh, they, they seem to have, you know, these, this, this, uh, a similar path. So I'm wondering, who, who's wagging the dog or who's wagging the tail here? Is it the U.N. or is it the, uh, uh, these roundtable groups? Uh, it's the roundtable groups. And I say that because um, it was the roundtable groups they came up with the old League of Nations, which was the idea of following World War One that they were going to try to band the various sovereign nations together and and create a new world order, uh, you know, so that they could uh, standardize and uh, rubber stamp some of the uh, politics and economics of the industrialized countries. But it didn't fly, and that was strictly because the United States Senate refused to join. They said, we, I don't think we want to give up our sovereignty. We've built a pretty good country here in the United States, and I think we'll just keep our own sovereignty. So that's when they created the Council on Foreign Relations and the um, Royal Institute of International Affairs, and originally their specific purpose was to acclimate the public to accept this uh, this collection, this collectivism of world nations. Uh, now they didn't they that and at that point they of course 
we're talking about the League of Nations, and then when it fell through, then they just continued to operate. And then by the time of World War II, uh, they were really pretty brilliant towards the end of the war with um, Russia and the United States and Britain and Canada and Australia and, and uh, uh, 20 other countries all cooperating, trying to win the war against uh, Hitler and against uh, the Japanese militarists, they just, the newspapers and the radios began to just refer to them as the United Nations. And then, as soon as the war was over with, they quickly created the United Nations and then set up that huge building in New York on Rockefeller land. This is all part of the plan to try to collectivize the world and bring them under uh, uh, centralized control, see? And that's why people don't quite understand why these people were so supportive of first communism. Uh, They supported the Bolsheviks in Russia rather than the white Kerensky government. And then they created Hitler and National Socialism in Germany, and it's like, well, wait a minute, I thought the communists and the Nazis were were deadly enemies, you know? Well, and on on the surface they were, and yet they were created by the same moneyed interest. And the reason is pretty simple. If you you own something, then you control it. If you control it, then you don't have to be afraid of it. Uh, And they had to create national socialism in Germany to try to stop the spread of communist socialism out of Russia because it was it was getting out of hand they wanted socialism but they didn't want war. they actually you know you hear about this one world government but they really don't want a one world government a monolithic one world socialist government because if that was the case then they couldn't pit one country or one economic block against another i think what they want is what we see reflected in the book 1984, written by a British Fabian socialist by the name of Eric Arthur Blair, uh, who wrote under the pen name George Orwell, and I think he was privy to the plan. And the plan is they would like to divide the world up into three, possibly even four or more economic blocks, and then play them off against each other, just like they did with the Cold War between the communist east and the capitalist west and they funded both and they played them off against each other for maximum profit and control and then when they when that ran out of steam they couldn't make that work anymore now of course we're having to battle international terrorism whatever that is right yeah that's uh, fascinating the fact that uh, if terrorism is such a threat you know, why is the, uh, the this gaping hole in the U.S. security fence between the U.S. and the Mexican border allowed to remain, you know, wide open? If they were really concerned about Al Qaeda pouring over the border, I mean, that was right. one that that would be one place where they what I where I would start if I were Al Qaeda. Start by securing <laughs> the borders, right? Right, but uh, and, you know, hey, you got you got a visa, you got a passport, you know, you're going to come visit, great, you know, but uh, otherwise, sorry, you got to be legal. You're right, Jim. The, the war is not. On terror, it's on us. And, and we are the enemy. Let me share this with you, Richard, because I, I've already, I've heard people say, "Well, oh, they they can't close the border." Uh, yes, they can, and they have in my lifetime uh, for for maybe half a day or more. At the time of the Kennedy assassination, when Lyndon Johnson was saying, "Hey, this could be the start of a 
of World War III. This could be an uh, attack by, by the Russians. After all, Lee Harvey Oswald's been to Russia. You know, this could be a start of an attack. They closed the border. There you go, Jim. Hold on. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Uh, President Bill Clinton um, really named two individuals during his um, inauguration speech. One was uh, you know, for inspiring him. One was uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, the other was his professor at Georgetown University, Carol Quigley, who wrote... Uh, tra- tragedy and Hope, and he also wrote another book called, he wrote a number of books, but the other one uh, in which he talks about um, the um, these Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes Roundtable groups uh, it was the Anglo-American establishment. Mm-hmm. Now, was Quigley an apologist uh, of, of for, the, for this secret society? Why was he writing this book? Was he outing them or was he an apologist for the, for the aims of the Roundtable groups? Uh, he was uh, an apologist, basically, except he didn't apologize. In fact, he said that he had actually been part of all this and that he agreed with it. Uh, he said the only thing he disagreed with these New World Order people is that they wanted to try to remain secretive and slip all this in on everybody and that he thought that it was a good idea, and that they ought to just get up and explain to everybody, this is this is the best idea, this is the way to peace and prosperity, and this is the way we should go. And um, I'm with Quigley. Not that I think that's the way that we should go, but simply that I agree. I think it ought to be all on the table, and everybody ought to understand. Uh, you've, you've mentioned several times about Agenda 21. This is a program that they are pushing through the United Nations, uh, which uh, superficially sounds great. We want to, you know, try to save wetlands and save uh, wildlife refuges and, you know, try to help the environment. Well, you know, who can be against that? And uh, and yet the, their way of doing this, the methods of doing that, uh, was to, we'll just move people off their property. <laughs> Eminent domain, where the government will take it over move people off, and uh, uh, the government will take over the running of it. Already now, the vast majority of land in the United States today is now owned by the government. Where, where did that come about? That's not, that's not what government's supposed to be about. Government is, the, is supposed to be here ordained to, uh, as representatives of the people to administer the public areas of life to try to see that the playing field is level, uh, to try to see that labor doesn't, you know, run rampant over management and that management doesn't run rampant over labor. And uh, and yet that's not what's happening. Now, uh, now we have a whole layer of government control, and you have bureaucrats that are trying to run everything. And people are being run off their land. Little girls are having their lemonade stands shut down. <laughs> farmers can't sell milk, for God's sakes. Mm. I mean, you know, we, we've gone absolutely bonkers in this country. It's it's interesting that, that Clinton would um, would thank uh, Quigley, and I don't know if he's 
Vivi's publicly stated this. You would you would know, Jim. Has has Clinton ever acknowledged that that Quigley was uh, an advocate of this end game and that he agreed with it? Oh yes. Uh, now it hasn't been that plain. He had never said. Uh, Quigley says this and and put it down in in a very uh, just you know flat out statement and then saying yes and I support him. But he has, on several occasions, praised Quigley and, uh, as being, you know, this mentor to him. And uh, it's, uh, it's no secret that that's... Uh, and, of course, he's a Rhodes Scholar, remember? Mm-hmm. You know, so, so they pick this kid out of Arkansas and send him over to England to study so he can be a Rhodes Scholar. So he will follow in the footsteps of Cecil Rhodes. And did Summers, I understand, at Kennebunkport was was uh, was uh, basically taken under the Bush uh, family, uh, uh, under you know, taken to their bosom, if you will. Is yeah. And again, we see the incestuous nature of all this because Cecil Rhodes was not just operating in a vacuum. In 1888, uh, in his third and final will, he left everything to Lord Rothschild. Hmm. So once again, we find the Rothschilds. Behind everything, okay? Just like uh, German Chancellor Bismarck said that the war between the states, uh, the North and the South here in the United States, was fomented by the Rothschild banking dynasty in Europe. And that it was all planned to break up North America so that the French and the English could come back and take control over North America. Of course, you don't get taught this in school. So everybody goes, what? Where do you get this conspiracy theory? You know, but it's not a theory. It's just there, and it's, historians know it. People that study their history know it, but uh, most people don't know it because they never get told this, these things. The um, quickly again, uh, he he actually names the leaders of of uh, of this group. He he says it was, you know at the beginning it was Cecil Rhodes, and then he handed it off to Alfred Milner. Uh, And then Milner alone ran it until his death in 1925. Then someone named Lionel Curtis from 25 to 55, Robert H. Brand from 55 to 63, Adam Maris from 63 until the time Quigley wrote his book. Uh, So who's running the show now? Or does it matter? I mean, do do, do the names matter? Well, that's a good question. Essentially, no, because uh, you probably wouldn't know the names anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But uh, it's it's the same families and the same ownership. That's what I've been trying to tell people. It's uh, they're still very much in control. This is what the Occupy thing was all about, where they were talking about the one percent. Yeah, the one percent. You know, it's probably one uh, percent of one percent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And even that one percent is kind of an inflated number because most of the most of that one percent, they are people hangers-on, wannabes, people who are making their living. You know dealing with this and, and administering the policies of the less than 1%. Uh, but they, they follow along with the game plan, and uh, so, so they count, even though they're not the decision makers. Uh, it's just like uh, in any large corporation. Uh, you know, people say, well, let's find, the, let's find the president of the company, and we'll just lynch him, and everything will be okay. No, that has worked. In fact, most presidents of most large corporations, uh, particularly in in Canada, the United States, Britain, 
are are for the most part probably decent people. They're family men, you know. They they like their opulent lifestyle. They like to have chauffeur-driven limousines, and they like to have their country estates and everything. But basically, they they may be perfectly fine people. They're just capable administrators. Hmm. They follow the policies that are set by the chief executive officers and by the people, sometimes faceless people, who sit on the, and I say faceless because they're just not known to the public, who sit on these boards of directors and then direct them, okay? Here's what you're going to do. And then they see to it that these uh, orders and the and these uh, marching orders get carried out. And so you can't even... You can't even say, well, we'll wipe out the president and the vice presidents of this corporation and everything will be all right. No, no, it's, it's got to get to the ownership. And then you're in a real problem because I'm the last one in the world that says well, somebody can't own something. That's, that's one of the bedrocks of freedom. If you can't own something, then you, nobody's free, are they? Well, yes, except uh, if... If the free market is no longer free, if you have uh, a situation where you have a couple of monopolies, I mean, right. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, tried to bust up Standard Oil. Of course, that's, that's right. that was pretty difficult to do. But uh, well, and, there comes and a look time. What happened? Okay, mm-hmm. here was Standard Oil, which at one point controlled probably ninety percent of the whole petroleum industry of the world, and they said this is a monopoly, which it was. So the Supreme Court acted, and they broke it up into, I believe, like 33 different companies. Okay, well, John, old John D. Now, instead of having majority ownership in one <laughs> monopolistic company, now he's got majority ownership in 33 companies. He became the world's first billionaire. Mm. So you know, it's it's a it's a tricky deal, but I think there's ways of of working it out. Uh, for instance, Walmart, you know, out of Benton, Arkansas, uh, and uh, they, they, uh, what's the fellow's name that started Walmart? Oh, uh, was it Walsh? No, Walt, Walton. Uh, Walton. Walton, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, or Walton, yeah, I think. Anyway, you know who I'm talking about. Yes, Sam Walton. Sam Walton. And he had a great idea for marketing, and he just went wild and kept building more stores and spread out. And, and now, you know, Walmart comes in a place and runs off all the mom-and-pop shops, and then pretty soon they've got it uh, because they now have such a buying power that they can buy stuff and sell it a lot cheaper than than the average businessman can. That's why they've been so successful. Okay, I have no problem with that, and I have no problem with Sam Walton building up his little empire if he's a hard worker, and as long as he's doing things legally, that's fine. But there needs to be government. At some point, there needs to be government that acts as referee. And, for example, in the case of Walmart, I think it's too late now, but they should have said, okay, you can have umpteen stores in any state, but you can't go outside the state lines. Or how about saying that um, you know most of your products have to be built in the good old USA yeah, or, or in or, Canada. Or 80% have to right. be made in the United States. Exactly. Or something. I mean, you know, that's just, we're just talking theory here. But the point being is there are ways to make that happen that would be fair to everybody. But that's not what's happened, is it?
No, Jim, we, uh, we're just about out of time here, but just uh, in, a, in, in uh, 90 seconds, we just recently commemorated the, uh, the 49th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. Of course, your book, Crossfire, seminal work, inspired Oliver Stone to make JFK. Uh, next year, you know, the 50th anniversary coming up. But um, any, any new information that's come to light uh, uh, on the assassination that you think is just, you know, explosive and needs to be needs uh, to be there, There's just all kinds of things. For example, but it's none of it is, uh, if you're looking for a thank you note from Lyndon Johnson to Lee Oswald, you know, you're not going to find <laughs> it. But, if, but there's stuff like we now have a document shows that the CIA internally, five or six, half a dozen top officials of the CIA were very concerned about Lee Harvey Oswald two months before the assassination. And, in fact, they were wondering if it was the same Oswald that had defected to Russia. So this was something, see, you would have to have lived through it. But we were told at the time, and have been all these years, that the government, nobody in the government knew anything about Oswald. He just kind of fell between the cracks, and, and nobody really knew. And nobody, who would have thought that he was, would have been there and would have done something? Hey, they knew. He was, he was intimately tied to the Central Intelligence Agency, and they knew about him. In fact, you can go back, here's another document. Uh, 1960, three years before the assassination, where J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, queries the uh, security division of the State Department and was warning them that an imposter was using Lee Harvey Oswald's birth certificate. In other words, there's an imposter posing as Oswald running around. Well, wait, if that's the case, then who was it in Dallas? Indeed. Jim, always a pleasure. And uh, again, the um, occultist history of, uh, our, uh, again, the title of the book due out in February. Our occulted our, history. Our occulted history, February 2013. Thank you, yeah. Jim. Bye-bye. Watch for it. It's going to be an eyebrow raiser. Will do. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. And a special hello to all of my listeners in the greater Toronto area, across Ontario, Maine to Minnesota, south to the Carolinas, and uh, if you're listening online at zoomerradio.ca, anywhere around the world, welcome, welcome, and a hello, a special hello to... uh, my affiliates down at WIXI in Birmingham, WKAC in Huntsville, KVNA in Phoenix, WIMO in Atlanta, and uh, our friends at, uh, in, uh, along the Hudson Valley, WBNR, Beacon, New York, WGHQ in Kingston, WALNA in Peekskill. I just spoke recently with, uh, uh, with the, uh, the program director uh, down there, uh, Bruce Owen. So if you're listening, Bruce, hello. Great talking to you. And I uh, uh, can't forget... WZGM, or WZGM, I should say, in Asheville, North Carolina. They were first out of the gate, our first affiliate here. So, uh, welcome, welcome, one and all, as I sit here in the cozy confines of 550 Queen Street East in Toronto in our flagship station, AM740, Zoomer Radio. Uh, Well, we just recently rolled past the 49th anniversary of the assassination of JFK and the old uh, Dennis Miller joke uh, when you ask a young person where were you when they shot JFK they think you mean the Oliver Stone film where were you when they shot the film <laughs> but uh, no we got to roll back to 63 uh, for this one 
And, of course, next year will be the 50th anniversary. Uh, that's going to be a big one. But we like to, to, uh, to take note every year uh, of that um, monumental moment in history. It, it wasn't simply, uh, as tragic as it was, the, the, the murder uh, of the president. There's much more to this story than that. And just about every year, uh, I, I, um, I welcome my next guest because uh, certainly in this country, he is probably unparalleled in assassination research. In fact, in the mid-70s, early to mid-70s, if you saw the Zapruder film on TV for the first time here in Canada, it's because of the gentleman who sits across uh, the microphone from me. He was the one that flew down uh, to Dallas and met with Penn Jones, probably the preeminent JFK assassination researcher. Now, just a short while before my guest met with Penn Jones, Penn Jones had met with New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, who had a copy of the Sapruder film. Now, remember, most people hadn't seen it yet. It was important. Garrison wanted people to see this. So he gave a copy to Penn Jones. Penn Jones gave a copy to my guest. My guest, at great risk, smuggled it into Canada. Remember, this was embargo. No one was supposed to have this. He gave it to a border station in Canada. It, I believe it was a CBC station. I'll, we'll, we'll find out here in a, in a moment. And it was broadcast, and that's how many people saw the Zapruder film for the first time. Nelson Thal studied media science under Marshall McLuhan at the Center of Culture and Technology and St. Michael's College in Toronto. He served as president of the Marshall McLuhan Center on Global Communications from 1990 to 95. He served as director of, the, of research for the Center for Media Sciences of Toronto and is a leading authority on the science of communication, media theory, and process analysis. And he is an assassination researcher He's also brought some wonderful artifacts. Uh, first, let's welcome Nelson Thal to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, hello my friend. How hey, are you? Richard. Great to be here. Now, we are in Canada, mm-hmm. but we do have a weapon on the table, but we, we need to make clear to anyone, uh, any authority listening, that this was transported by a fully licensed, uh, 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 it's fully registered, it's licensed. Uh, what is this? This is a rifle that's sitting on my desk, uh, and it looks like, Sort of vintage World War One, <laughs> but how is this connected to the uh, Kennedy assassination? Well, this is actually the uh, uh, Mannlicher Carcano, which is uh, supposedly the gun that Lee Harvey Oswald shot the president with. It's known as the humanitarian rifle. Can I just pick this up here? Yeah, and, and, uh, because just... it, you couldn't kill anybody with it. Is uh, in this book, which we have here, the gun by Henry Bloomgarden. A biography of the gun that killed John F. Kennedy. He calls it the humanitarian rifle because you couldn't kill anybody with it, even if you wanted to. All right. Now, uh, obviously, it is not loaded. Uh, but yeah. I just may I open the? Uh, yeah. Okay. I the just bolt. To, the bolt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just gonna. Yep. Yeah, it's not. Yes, you can. I'm about as gifted with a weapon as Oswald was. Uh, okay. I just. Okay, there we go. Yes. There we go. Okay, so and I'm having a little trouble with this, uh, you know, uh, with this bolt action. And action. So we are led to believe this bolt action that he was able to fire 
three shots in less than five six, inside six seconds. Okay, from the sixth floor of the Texas uh, Book Depository right. building. Uh, and I've been there, and if you go up onto the sixth floor, uh, the window is still ajar. And uh, but if you go up there, the window is not. It's not like you can stand and look out the window. You've got to get down on your knee. On your knee because the window is at the ground level. Right. So he, so Oswald would have been up there with this rather cumbersome bolt action weapon, and fired. Now this weapon does not have a, a scope on it. No, this doesn't. But the one that Oswald uh, is supposedly. Uh, that the police claim that Oswald used had a scope on it, and by the way, in order to um, have it tested, they had to adjust the uh, telescopic sights and put shins underneath it, and uh, in order to get it going. So even the rifle that they claimed was the one he uh, used was uh, had to be significantly upgraded in order to get it to shoot properly. Yeah. Now, so uh, the, the 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 weapon that Oswald allegedly used was that found that was found in the. Uh, well, actually, Friday night, the police and the news reported that they found a Mauser, a, a German, German Mauser, was what the was reported publicly, and the next day it was changed to this weapon. And this was supposedly More, found in the Texas Book Building, right? The depository right, exactly. building, and but it was found. What, as you say, though, in order to test the weapon, the FBI had to make serious upgrades to the to the uh, because it was in such disrepair. Yeah, tell yeah. me about. Uh, I understand that the firing pin was in horrible shape. It was rusty. Yeah, it was just not in really good firing shape. Uh, but you know, Rich, let's go back. It's forty nine years. I started to get into this heavily and follow the nineteen sixty nine. Jim Garrison trial with against Clay Shaw. Right. And that's when I started to get really started to follow it. And um, I was 17 years old. And uh, basically, it, you could tell right there that a serious cover-up was in place. And um, the cover-up has been very successful, by the way. Let's face it. It's 49 years. Uh, they've kept it, uh, kept a good cover on it. They've spent millions and millions of dollars on agent provocateurs and their books. There's been a sig- most of the books uh, uh, about the Kennedy assassination are uh, – Paid for by the uh, the the gang that uh, that was behind the assassination itself. Right, right. I, I do want to talk more about the yeah. weapon, but let me Let's just go, ask you a minute because yeah. you mentioned Clay Shaw, and 1969, six years after the assassination, why did Garrison target this individual Clay Shaw? Well, who was Clay Shaw? Well, Clay Shaw was a uh, was a. a, a an agent of uh, of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency and uh, closely aligned with other organ other intelligence agencies out of Europe, and he was on the board of Permindex Corporation, Permanent Industrial Expositions, and Permindex was named by Garrison as one of the major companies beh- that was used to bring off the assassination. Permindex had been thrown out of France by Charles de Gaulle and named it as a murder inc, quote unquote. And so the directors of uh, Permindex were Clay Shaw and Major Lewis Mortimer Bloomfield of British SOE, Her Majesty's Secret Service. So those two men were named by Garrison, 
along with others. We can go through a lot of the others. Right. Uh, but Bloomfield and and uh, and uh, Clayshaw were the major men that were operating and controlling Permindex, which was the corporation that was hired to uh, do the big event, what's called, they call it the big event. Right, and and they also tried to assassinate De Gaulle, Gaulle. and that was um, the, uh, there was a movie made about that. Yeah, uh, the Papillon. No, not the Papillon. uh, Um, It was uh, uh, not the Day of the Jackal, but um, I can't remember. It'll come to me later. But De Gaulle uh, named Permindex as a company and threw it out of France. And they're the same and ones went responsible to the, for the JFK the one, Right, named by Garrison as responsible for the Kennedys. And okay. of course, I think we should also point out that the Kennedy assassination, when we look back on it now, was not just the assassination of the president. The men behind it weren't interested just in killing the president. They were interested in executive action. They wanted to take out the executive branch of government. And we can see over the last 49 years, they were successful. They not just killed, didn't just kill Kennedy. They took out the executive branch of the United States government. And then it all started to operate from the basement with Secord and North and the military took over. And if you look at it today, obviously there is there are no three separate branches in the United States. There's no separation of powers. And this was the first coup d'etat in the United States. That's an excellent way of putting it. It was a coup, a coup d'etat. Yeah. They took over the executive branch. Yep. And some uh, you know, have argued that 9-11 uh, was sort of the, the final a nail in the coffin. And uh, through the Patriot Act and so forth, they essentially took over all the other branches, including the U.S. Postal Service, all now gathered together under one national security state headquartered in this multi-billion dollar facility outside of Washington, D.C., named after uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. All right, we'll be back. Nelson Thal, assassination researcher, as we delve into uh, JFK. And uh, I try to... uh, uh, fire off three shots in five seconds using this uh, replica of Oswald's rifle. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Commemorating the uh, the recent uh, uh, anniversary of JFK's assassination, I want to do a little experiment. I have here a, um, a replica of the Manlicher Kirkano. This is the humanitarian rifle uh, that Oswald allegedly used to kill the president. Now, according to the Warren Commission, he fired three shots in under five seconds. Under six. Under six seconds. Nelson Thal, assassination researcher, media scientist here. So let me, uh, uh, I've got the, uh, the weapon here. Uh, let me see, using this, uh, this bolt-action uh, uh, rifle, if I can actually do that. So, Nelson, I'm going to get you to look at the clock, and I'm going to... Actually, I'm going to get you to count to six, okay? And uh, you tell me when to go, and then I'll see if I can actually... My stopwatch out here. Okay. okay. Ready, go. We're ready to go. Okay. On three. One, two, three. Okay, one. All right. Two. Three. Nine point four. Nine point four, and I tell you, man. I mean, that's a that's that's a cumbersome bolt action. I was going as fast as I could. Yeah. Nine point four. Yeah. So let's say I was pretty darn good. Yeah. Uh, let's say I could fire three, get three shots fired. Right. In second, but but with that amount of you know accuracy, 
Hard to believe. Hard to believe yeah. that he used this weapon. Uh, Oswald, interesting guy. Oh, yeah. That's, let's talk about Oswald. Uh, that's the most interesting guy. Radar specialist uh, in Japan. Um, uh, trade at the high, trade, trained at the most secret CIA uh, base in Japan. Right. See, not in Japan, but it was in Japan, but the most secret CIA base in the world, which was at that time in Japan. He spoke multiple languages. Right. He was an expert in Russian studies. He failed all his shooting tests. Well, my understanding was he got he, Maggie's drawers, as they call it. Maggie's drawers. Yeah, what that's that when you, you miss the target totally. Right. He, and he goes to Russia, defects in the late 50s, um, gives up secrets to the Russians that as to when the U-2 is flying over. Francis Gary Power is flying the U-2 over the spy plane. Right. As a result, they shoot down the U-2. The Russians shoot down the U-2 spy plane, and so the summit between Khrushchev and uh, Eisenhower is canceled. Because the Americans were embarrassed. They were, they were caught red-handed spying on the Russians. Exactly. So now, Khrushchev was forced to cancel the summit. Now, this summit between Eisenhower and Khrushchev may have brought about peace, a, a peace or a, at least a thawing of the Cold War. And so it, it would have hurt. Wants, it would have hurt sales of the military-industrial complex for sure. So somebody above Eisenhower, right-wing decide, generals in the Pentagon, decided to send Oswald to Russia. Here again was a radar specialist. He gives them the coordinates because he no, gives, there's no way they could have intercepted that U-2. It was too fast. Right. So he gives them the times that they're going to c- come overhead. The U-2 is going to fly over Fly over time. And they, 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 so they, they can get up in the air fa- enough in advance right. and shoot it down. They shoot Gary Francis Powers' uh, plane down. Now, didn't Gary Francis Powers actually publicly mention in Oswald? His book. What in did his he book. say? What did yeah. he say? He said that as a result of Oswald's defection, that's why he was shot down. He named Oswald in his book years later. How would he have known that? Well, because he knew he knew he was a military pilot. He right. found out through, just like all of us, he, he he found out through intelligence circles that Oswald had defected and put two and two together. So, so Oswald the, was a CIA asset at that point, the late fifties, early sixties. Absolutely, a Marine as well, right. uh, and and defects double agent for the Americans. The interesting thing is when he comes back. When he comes back, he's paid to come back by the United States government. It, volume 18 of the Warren Commission calls it the Oswald repatriation loan, quote unquote. In other words, he needed money to, to, come, to back come back to the States. They loaned him the money so that he could be flown back. He's a traitor, quote yes. unquote. Yes. He returns. and you, On the taxpayer's dime. Taxpayer's dime. And he's not arrested or questioned. He's given up state secrets and he's not questioned. He's not even met by the FBI, by the CIA. Nobody, no police. He's met by George DeMorenschild, who is a, a court. Richard Helms testifies years later that DeMorenschild is a Nazi intelligence agent. That's Richard Helms. The Came director over to the U.S. The through the rat line. Came over to the U.S. through Operation Paperclip. Exactly. So why so did he, he pick him up? Well, he picks Oswald up and gets him connects him here with the Dallas white Russian group and with Michael and Ruth Payne, who work at Bell Helicopters for Walter Dornberger, who's the Nazi that got out through the rat line 
and was sentenced to hang at Nuremberg, but was taken out and protected by the Americans as well. So you have all of these uh, German intelligence officers and so forth who come over Uh, and they take up former Nazis who take up positions within the military industrial complex and they're grooming Oswell. They're they're bringing him uh, back to the U.S. Now, but, and, and but, then Nancy Payne gets Oswald the job at the Book Depository Building. Right. But also, let's not forget the book The Second Oswald by Professor Popkin, because the Oswald that comes back is two and a half inches different height than the Oswald that went. So there's the Marine Oswald that went there, and then there's the SALT agent. The, there's, the, there's a different Oswald that comes back. What do you mean by a SALT agent? Well, in the movie SALT... You, they show this. If you get the movie Salt with uh, that just came out a few a uh, few years ago, right? They show this that that the 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 switch of the agents. Of course, Ian Fleming, British intelligence, wrote about it called From Russia with Love. That 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 movie and that book, From Russia with Love, was really about Oswald coming back, back. to America. The double. The switch. So you've got an Oswald coming back who's at the school book depository now, who now becomes the patsy, says he's the patsy, and then he's shot in the basement. But, of course, we find of out— Of the county courthouse during the prison transfer. Yeah. Years later, we find out that Ike Pappas, who was sitting bes- standing beside Ruby— The photographer. Photographer, CBS, CBS News reporter— on his retirement says in late 90s says funny thing there was no blood at the scene so you've got a man shot in the gut there should be tons of blood but you look at the tv pictures and you look uh, look at the witnesses like ike pat pappas after his retirement says uh, there was no blood and then you have a lee harvey oswald working with dr alton oshner Who's one of the, who's president of the American Cancer Society, and working with Dr. Mary Sherman, <laughs> right? And, and on, they were... on cancer weapons, on you on the development of cancer as a weapon, right? I, my understanding was uh, Dr. Dr. Mary's Mary Sh- monkey. Yes, Dr. Uh, Mary uh, Sherman. Yes, was um, basically what they found out was the the um, the polio vaccine had been tainted with this cancer-causing monkey virus. Monkey virus. And she was supposed to find... She thought this was why she was hired yes. and brought to, to uh, New Orleans, I guess it was. She thought she was supposed to find an antidote to this, but she didn't realize she was actually working on a weaponization right. of, of the cancer virus. Right. With Lee Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald, and David Ferry. Yes. So one man could never... You know, we've looked at the evolution of uh, a few years ago. Remember, we brought in the poster with all the different pictures of Oswald. Right. There were at least three or four doubles of Oswald. So you have the Oswald who who was the uh, Marine. a radar um, uh, expert in in and a, and a Marine in Japan who who uh, goes, uh, to goes to Russia. Then you have a different Oswald who comes back. Meanwhile, you've got another Oswald working alongside <laughs> Dr. Mary Sherman in New Orleans and Alton Oshner. Yes. Not just he, but also working alongside and Alton Oshler, who's the chief surgeon of Tulane Medical School, one of the most prestigious medical schools in the United States. And, and a rabid uh, anti-Castro. Yeah, and, and was president of the American Cancer Society. So who was Lee Oswald? The, there certainly 
Lee Oswald, even if there was an Oswald shot in Dallas and killed, there are still other Oswalds out there. Was there an Oswald at 9-11? We understood that there was an Oswald safe housed on Borden Avenue in Toronto who left Toronto and went to New York just nine months before 9-11. So there still is a Lee Harvey Oswald and probably listening to the show right now. My word. Nelson Thal, a media scientist, JFK assassination uh, researcher, the man who brought the Zapruder film to Canada back in the, uh, when was that, 1974? I brought it in 73. 73. And when was it shown? What, what station was it shown? Well, uh, CBLT and the Windsor CBC channel. Through a high level, the highest level executive at CBC in Toronto, I had a contact with through my aunt who was... Uh, head of casting for CBC, and uh, through, I don't want to mention names because he's still alive, but um, he uh, w- arranged it so that I could uh, air it at 2 a.m. And we we told a lot of friends who were, remember, there were no video cassette recorders in those days, Richard. No. You had to go to the libraries or to the universities, and you had big, big v- videotape machines. And at the universities, we told about 10 people at the different universities in the States near the border, turn it on at 2 a.m. We're going to lower the color bars or lower the color bars and, uh, and air it and play it for approximately 15 seconds. So the color bars went down at 2 a.m. and we aired it at for approximately like the whole tape is like 26 seconds. Yeah. So 26 we, seconds. So we, we t- for about f- uh, one minute, it, we played it twice. And that's it? There was no intro, no extra? You just played Nothing. It. We couldn't. It was too dangerous. It was illegal to have in the United States. Why? They, they, why? Because it, the reason is, is because it shows a man definitively shot from the front. And you can't, if you were one of the, the cover-up, it, it, it would really blow the cover-up. They couldn't allow Americans to see it because Americans would say, oh, he was shot from the front. But you guys are telling us Oswald's always been behind him. So it, Gar- it's a smoking gun. So Garrison got the film. Garrison subpoenaed it during the Clay Shot trial. Okay. Originally, it was purchased from Abraham Zapruder by Time Life. They sealed it in their archives. No one could get near it. In 69... Six years later, during the Clay Shot trial, Garrison had some Kodak labs on standby. And during the lunch break, he illegally himself grabbed it, took it out of the courtroom, got, took it to the labs over the lunch hour, had them make copies and brought it back before the, they, they re, brought the, uh, the court resumed for the afternoon session. And he gave it to Penn Jones. Uh, he gave it. To, well, I met with Jim Garrison and talked to him. You met with Garrison. Yeah, I met with Garrison in 1971. And in 19, two years later, it took me two years to gain his comfort, his comfort level. And two years later, he agreed to pass it to me via Penn Jones. So you fly down and meet him at where? Love Field? At the I time? go to meet Penn Jones in Dallas at the Dallas airport. It wasn't Love Field. At that it wasn't time. Love Field. OK. And then he gives this thing to you. And then he, what do you do? You must be you must I'm, have been sweating I'm bullets. Absolutely sweating bullets. What he did was he carved out a hole in Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope. How fitting. And put it in there. And 
and handed it back. What would have happened if you'd been caught? 77 years in jail. I'd still be in jail today. What I did was I got a ticket. In those years, there wasn't any security. So Jones could walk right to the gate. So I got off the plane. He handed me the book. I gave the ticket back to the stewardess for the return flight. The return flight was on the same plane. And I went back and sat there in my seat while the cleaners were cleaning up. I was so frightened. And the stewardess says, you know, we're going to clean the plane. Uh, You don't have to sit there. I said, no, no, no. I'll sit here in the plane. I just sat in the plane in my seat waiting to take off. And I was very, very, very frightened. I can tell you that. The Zapruder film, 26 seconds on eight millimeter. Yeah. Um, Now, it's been often suggested that the Zapruder film was, when when the public finally did see it, that it was manipulated, that it was um, um, altered, altered, yeah, in order to hide certain things. Tell me, how do you think it was altered? Well, there were many f- at the time. We were we were aware that they altered frames. Uh, <clears throat> they took out a number of frames, and. Uh, because there was bullets that had – remember the Stemmons Freeway sign right beside where the Umbrella Man was standing. I'm getting technical now yeah. for those who know what I'm talking about. The next day, they took the Stemmons Freeway sign down. It was alleged that on the original good copy of the Sapruder film, you could see – uh, the sign being hit by a bullet. Well, now they they couldn't have more more. It's enough to make three bullets. Then you get four bullets, and then of course, so they they took out frames when that showed the sign being hit, and they took out other frames the, uh, along the way. The, the, now the copy that you that you had and that, yeah. that was aired. Yeah. What? was a terrible copy because it's the one that was given to Garrison. Was it altered? It wasn't the Groden one. We didn't get the Groden until years later. What's Robert, the Groden one? Well, Robert Groden, years later, got a very clear copy. The copy that was given to the Warren Commission was scratchy. It was dark. It was gray. There were frames missing. It was, But, it, but still, it was good enough that you could see um, the, Kennedy was shot from the front because he went backwards with tremendous velocity. If, you know, if you're shot from the back, you're not going to go backwards. You're okay, gonna... we'll take a time out, but there's, we'll, we'll get to this when we come back. There were, there were also eyewitnesses who talked about the, the limo almost slowing down to a complete stop. stop. Uh, and and uh, that apparently was taken out. We'll uh, get into this right. with Nelson Thal, media scientist, assassination researcher. And, uh, well, we've got the uh, the Carcano, the Mar- the uh, the Manlicker Carcano here as well, and uh, uh, some other uh, books and artifacts we'll uh, discuss as well. Three shots in six seconds. You be the judge. Back with more. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Nelson Thal uh, in studio, media scientist, assassination researcher, the man responsible for the Zapruder film, uh, first being aired uh, on a Canadian border station. Now, important to note the distinction here. What you were trying to do, Nelson, was, uh, I mean, this was... Well, we couldn't get get anybody to really show the film during a show. So the only way to distribute it was to get people who we knew at CBC, CBLT, Toronto, just to use their transmission facility to 
Transmit it late at night. Two o'clock in the morning, normally when there'd be color bars, color bars. they drop that for one minute, they snuck the film onto the TV, and you alerted certain individuals at universities, at universities. and researchers. This Friends. was not for public consumption. No. But you got it out there. Got it out to the researchers. And they were running their video their video recorders, their huge video recorders at the University of Buffalo or wherever. Two and a half inch tapes, that's right. all there was. Right. right. Now, the first time North American audiences saw this uh, was... In 1975, Geraldo Rivera had a program yeah. uh, called Goodnight America, but you were the first to get it onto the airwaves. Yeah. That's quite a distinction. The other thing about it is, remember, we were talking at the break, is uh, in the Warren Commission summary and conclusion, they, we caught them. That we were caught them switching frames. So Pruder Film 312 and 313, they... And they, they admitted that they did it, and, and they admitted they said it was a mistake. By reversing the frames, 312 and 313, the headshot, it makes it look like the president goes forward. Right. right? When, In other words, that he was shot from behind. Yeah. So they knew that they had a problem. And even in the Warren Commission, they switched the... F they switched the two frames. But they were caught red-handed, so they, they were had caught. to admit. They had to admit it. They admitted it, yeah. There's other witnesses also, and I don't know if this is in the in the Zapruder film, but uh, uh, whether it was altered out. Uh, but uh, the limo slows down just before the headshot. Yeah, uh, actually, it comes almost to a complete stop. That's what witnesses said. Yeah, a number of eyewitnesses. It, you can't see that in the Zapruder film; it doesn't show. But it's... but there are hints that that was done because you see uh, you see a person in frame. Uh, and, and then Mary there's almost Moore like a, there's a jump a jump cut. Yeah, because a couple of frames have been removed. She shows and then she disappears. Yes, and then she shows again. Yeah. Yes. So that was when the limo slowed down. The limo driver then must have been in on it. Oh, absolutely. In order to slow down, waiting for that final headshot. Oh yeah, for sure. The the Secret Service were definitely in, in, in on the whole. Here's thing. the thing, though. It, there must have been more than one. Abraham Zapruder out there with a film camera, don't oh, you think? Oh, there was Orville Nix. And remember that what they did is they, and Stone shows us in the movie, uh, they uh, they had a, epilep a fake epileptic attack uh, just on, outside of Dealey Plaza. And a lot of the, uh, the, the uh, bystanders went up to see that. To see this fake epileptic, and an ambulance arrived, took the guy away, and blocks later, the ambulance stopped, and he got up and ran away. People saw that. Yeah. So this Nix photographer, the Orville uh, Nix. Orville Nix. Yeah. Where is it? that? Well, Have we seen it? Yeah, we've seen it, but it's it's far the best. The best picture of all the films, other than the Babushka Ladies, which no one has seen, uh, but uh, the best film is the Zapruder film. And it's who was the closest? Was Zapruder um, a, uh, a white Russian? Another Russian. Interesting. And Penn Jones also felt that Zapruder was told to go there and film it. Interesting. So he was not just there by accident. Obviously. You've, here's an interesting book. You brought yeah. in an, a, uh, many books from your very extensive uh, JFK assassination library. Farewell America. James Hepburn. You said this book was banned. That book was banned in the United States until 2005. It was written in 1968. It was written by members of French intelligence under a false name, and it really went into the whole assassination. Showed that there were more than one shooters. It, it, it identified Oswald as a as a Russian. Uh, agent and uh, and uh, that was banned for many years. You know the way to get and the way in which we we studied the science of assassination was you don't 
go you look for the books that are banned and those are the ones you go after not the ones on the new york times bestsellers list the ones on the new york times bestsellers list are the ones written by the agent provocateurs remember millions of dollars have been spent by the cia uh, for agent provocateur books to fake to to cover it up and uh, in, in this book uh, farewell america you say it was written by french intelligence um, they've got a diagram. This is the the presidential parade route, of course, uh, you know, coming down uh, Maine, turning onto Houston before going on to Elm, past the book, to, the Texas School Book Top Depository. Uh, and then they've got here uh, four gunmen, four gunmen firing uh, from different positions. You've got, um, you've got um, f- from the grassy knoll, uh, you have, um, let's see... That would be the, um, the, the, the fatal shot to the head. You've got Gunman 3 from the book depository. That hits Connolly in the back. You've got Gunman number 1, which hit the president in the throat. And that is coming from also the grassy knoll. And then, uh, sorry, number 4 is coming from the Dal Tex building right. across the street from the on Houston, yeah. uh, which is definitely a clear shot. Um, Anyway, it's, uh, we'll, uh, we'll uh, discuss this a little bit when we come back. Farewell, America. Uh, there's a book people should look for. Nelson Thal in studio as we discuss the JFK assassination. Don't you dare go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Next year, of course, uh, uh, Nelson Thaw will oh, be the yeah. 50th anniversary, and uh, I'm, I'm sure people will be, re, you know, revisiting this, uh, re-examining it. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, Oliver Stone will reissue JFK. People will be going back to the theaters. You've seen the movie, I don't know how many times. Uh, JFK, what did Oliver Stone get right? What did he get wrong? Well, I don't think he got anything wrong, f- uh, given what he, th- given the l- the limits that he was. Obviously, to get a movie like this out, uh, uh, the ruling elite control the theaters, so he had to he had to limit how far he could go. But what he did, he did a great job at getting uh, getting it out. It's very it's a documentary, really, of the assassination. There's a scene there where they go to they take this weapon, the uh, the Manlicker Carcano. and uh, 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 they take it to the morgue right. where Oswald's body is. They put. Uh, Oswald's palm dead palm yeah. on a uh, on an ink pad, and then they put his palm print on the weapon. Right. That's in the movie, but did that happen? Certainly. How do we know? Well, how do we know? We know because of insiders like the Torbett document people. Uh, the Torbett document was written by one of the lawyers for Permindex. And uh, it's a great document. I suggest people read it if they want to learn more about the Kennedy assassination. Uh, and... Uh, I mean, Howard E. Howard Hunt has has uh, gave a deathbed uh, 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 confession as to his involvement. He was claimed he was one of the tramps, and uh, the tramps that were apprehended in the abandoned boxcar behind the grassy knoll. What was that all about? We've often heard of the tramps. Woody Harrelson's father was one of the three tramps. Who were these guys? Yeah, the every assa- every shooter had a. Had a, a gun, had a a walkie-talkie man with him, who and his job was to take the rifle from the shooter and dispose of the rifle. And what they did is, the shooters would take the shot, and then they would change and disappear. And the the, the 
guys like E. Howard Hunt were in railway cars right beside the grassy knoll. Remember, on the backside of the grassy knoll was a railway yard, and these three men were found in a railway car with weapons. They were led by policemen into the Dallas the, the, the Remember, Kennedy was killed within 40 yards of the sheriff's desk. They were led right into the police station and then let go. And there was no record of them. Mark Lane and many other researchers tried to find out what happened to these three guys. Nobody knows what happened to them. There's no record of their arrest. And this is how they just got rid of the, the shooters and, and the people involved and the teams. They just led them away and made it look like they were arresting them. And then they let them go. You know, the interesting thing is all the cars in the presidential limo, I mean, typically a presidential motorcade is they're all black. They're all different colors. Was there some, is that, did they want to be able to identify who was in what car? Was that by design, all the different colored cars? Well, let's remember that the director, the co-director, the deputy director of the CIA, Charles Cabell, was the brother of Earl Cabell, the mayor of Dallas. So that is how they were able to get the route changed. If you looked at the published route in the Dallas paper that day, it did not show them taking the little detour through Dealey Plaza, which was a total ambush. So, uh, you know, this is... This they had to come down Elm and Houston for the triangulation. They had to be right. able to have three... Three different uh, shooters, right, at least. Right. Let's so, go to the phones, and uh, we welcome Jerry from Pennsylvania. Jerry in the Keystone State, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hello. Hi there. Go ahead. Um, yeah, uh, JFK, um, the, um, e, e. Howard Hunt was, uh, was um, hired by Johnson to kill, kill JFK. And and uh, Johnson wanted to start the Bay Bay of Pigs invasion. It was called in Cuba, right? And and that's that's about what happened. E. Howard Hunt uh, uh, killed Kennedy, and uh, he was he was the hitman. And then I was like on. Uh, Conspiracy Theory by Jesse Ventura. Do you ever hear, watch that show? Uh, I've heard of it, but uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Hunt a little bit more. I mean, he was I mean, he was not the trigger man. Clearly, I mean, who? But who were the trigger men? Do we know? Well, uh, I've heard there have been uh, Garrison claim that E. Howard Hunt wasn't the trigger man, but was one of the. You know, I think that uh, he he claimed that Aaron Howard Hunt was on the ground, a right. manager guy on the right. ground, supervising the assassination teams. He wasn't a expert no. sniper shot. Did they bring some people in from Giancana's uh, Chicago uh, people, Nicoletti and and uh, yeah, these, these exactly. They brought in hired guns. And uh, there's there's rumors that there was a guy by the name of Holt, and uh, you know it 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 really doesn't matter who was the actual shooter. These guys were uh, were no name people, but expert gunmen, expert shooters, expert assassins, military and mafia guys. But uh, I had heard we've I've heard the rumor that Hunt was actually one of the shooters. But Garrison uh, in the and in the Torbett document they claim that he he was right on the scene as a supervisor, but not an actual trigger man.
Yeah, uh, I'd heard that it was uh, Nicol- and, and, Nicoletti. And, 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 and uh, to me, that's like, as May Brussels said, that's counting blades right. of grass on the grassy knoll. It really isn't important, really, the actual name of the trigger man. All right, let's say hello to Frank in Buffalo. Hello, Frank. Yeah, hi. Uh, hi uh, great show, uh, Thank Richard you. and uh, Nelson. It's an honor to talk to you, too. Uh, Nelson, isn't the, um, of, of all the, the things, and there's many, isn't the real Rosetta Stone of the Kennedy assassination Jack Ruby? I mean... A famous, tremendous, uh, um, famous way for the mob to get rid of somebody is to have them knocked off. And uh, I just think, isn't that like, isn't that real, the, the, the real fulcrum of the whole Kennedy assassination? Jack Ruby, another white Russian. Yeah, certainly. And who worked for Bush, not only the mafia, but worked for Herbert Walker Bush, who was also in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd. Certainly, Ruby is a major player in the whole assassination. Yeah, this wasn't Absolutely. just a guy that owned a strip club. I mean, how no. you know they <laughs> talk about that lack security cover. on that day, right? Yeah, uh, you know they're they're taking Oswald, doing the prison transfer, and yeah. uh, they say, well, well, here here comes a guy who owns the local uh, strip joint. He's got a gun. Okay, let him in. <laughs> yeah. And there's pictures of Oswald with Ruby. Uh, he, they knew each other very well. They knew each other beforehand. Yeah. All right. So so what was. I mean, did Oswald know then what was happening? Did he know that he was the that he was the fall guy? Did he think that he was part of a sting operation and then was surprised as anyone to find out that he was wanted in, for for JFK's well, assassination? Well, there was a Lee Harvey Oswald who was going to the FBI to FBI agent Hostie. He had an FBI in number. He was an, an operative of the FBI and w- was w- reporting to Hostie about the assassination. As it be before it transpired. Exactly. He was trying to alert the FBI. That's what we're told. Exactly. We're told he was trying to alert the FBI. Of course, Hostie burned the notes <laughs> and burned all the notes that he got from Oswald. They claimed, the FBI claimed, that the notes were uh, threats against uh, uh Marina Oswald and others. I mean, the FBI would come up with all sorts of crazy reasons as to why they burned, uh, not not Marina Oswald. They were threats against Jackie Kennedy is what ah. they claimed, the FBI, and so they burned them. Well, why burn it? Because it's a threat against, why wouldn't you keep this stuff? So the question is, what would Oswald be saying on these notes to Hostie that would cause them to want to destroy it? Well, Oz, in, in Stone's film, he claims that the only reason you would get rid of this stuff is if it was Oswald was trying to alert the government to this assassination plot. But we'll never know because, once again, and, of course, Garrison and Permindex names uh, Division 5 of the FBI as the group that planned and supervised the assassination. All right. Uh, Darlene is in Hamilton. Darlene, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi. Hi there. I have a a question. Does Nelson assist with, help with, or teach this type of document research? Uh, Not anymore. Uh, I did give courses on it years ago, uh, but um, uh, not anymore. And and, uh, most people... Most people, I don't know how much interest there was over uh, over the years. I mean, uh, people look at this as being just a, an assassination no different from uh, other assassinations, even though uh, 
Jim Garrison said that the Permindex also was the team that assassinated Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. But to answer your question, no, uh, I don't teach this at all. All right, Darlene, any but other thank questions? You. Uh, what about you, Darlene? Have you, have you done any research on it yourself? Um, no, but um, I find that sometimes um, you can't get information through normal channels. No, that's right. You go to sometimes the library, and if you look up something, um, and I, I don't mean like a history book, I mean something that's modern today that's happening, you can find out a lot of uh, common information. And I felt that maybe if um, Nelson was still doing some of these things, I, I guess now you're just writing about what had happened in the past. Well, what I'd like to do, since you mentioned it, is let me just give you some important books that you should get if you're interested. The Heritage of Stone is written by Jim Garrison. That's the place to start. He was the district attorney of New Orleans who... Uh, who charged uh, Clay Shaw with and mentioned and named Permindex and the people behind Permindex in the assassination and get the book The Secret Team by Fletcher Prouty. That was Donald Sutherland's character in JFK. He was uh, Mr. X. He was supposed to be the head of so, uh, Secret Service that was sent on this wild goose chase. He wasn't head of Secret Service. He was he was in charge of the security for the president by the military. Ah, okay. Right, right. But he was sent on a wild goose chase off to New, to Zealand, New Zealand to babysit some executives. Exactly. Oh. They'll do a photo shoot in Antarctic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so there's Secret Team by Colonel F Fletcher Prouty, Jim Garrison's book, F a Heritage of Stone, the Torbett document in the JFK assassination, uh, NASA Nazis and JFK, and uh, look up the Nazi connection to the JFK assassination by May Brussel. If you start to look at those, that'll be a great... Uh, way to start your your uh, investigation and uh, six seconds in dallas by uh, josiah thompson and get the book dr mary's monkey by edward t haslam that's the latest update wouldn't you say richard on on the lee harvey oswald story and track certainly certainly that adds an entirely new dimension, dimension. That most people are not uh, which reminds me i've got to get haslam back on the show it's been a number of years since i talked to him yeah so maybe for our 50th anniversary we'll uh, we'll do two hours and we'll uh, we'll bring haslam and we'll bring yeah. we'll bring all the major players and of course yeah. nelson thal our uh, resident media scientist assassination researcher thank you nelson but this caller raises a good point and that is Listen, this cover-up has worked for 49 years. They've successfully distracted America uh, from this, from the coup d'etat that took over, what Garrison called a, uh, a, a fifth-column conspiracy. And today we look at it as it's the New World Order takeover of the United States. Uh, there's a wonderful quote uh, on um, one of these books about... Uh... Treason doth never prosper. Why? For if treason doth prosper, none dare call it treason. There you go. A wonderful way to end. Nelson Thal, thank you. Thanks, Richard. Thank you to uh, Tim Spreen for production. Uh, next week, uh, Victor Vigiani sitting in for yours truly. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.